0: personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds and this is the Data Divas Talks Privacy Podcast where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world with information that you need to know now. I'm very happy to have a special guest on the show, uh, Davi Odenheimer, who's the VP of Trust and Digital Ethics at INRUPT in San Francisco, right?
1: A little south of San Francisco is where I'm located, but yes, Bay Area.
0: (laughs) The Bay Area. So I contacted you on LinkedIn. I was really fascinated by your profile. So, uh, you know, you have a background in, you know, economics, economics. politics I am a a, I was a philosophy major which my mother was horrified about in college so I see you have kind of philosophy (laughs) and literature you've been a a lecturer uh, on technology issues Um, also you know an advisory board uh, member for many different companies so I thought to me your profile really uh, attracted me so I'm like this is a big thinker. This is somebody I need to really talk to. And so I really like the way you're kind of talking about and framing data issues, things about trust and sovereignty and things like that. So why don't you tell me a bit uh, about yourself, anything that I left out that's kind of of interest that you want to share with the audience?
1: Okay, well, thank you. That's such a kind introduction. Uh, It resonates with me when you say your mother was horrified about studying philosophy my family is primarily engineers applied scientists you know and electrical engineering during the big boom when electricity became so widespread even the beginning of computers so I studied social science as a black sheep almost in the family although my parents studied anthropology but they still did it a very my father even used computer modeling in the 70s in anthropology to do like kinship analysis so I felt like I was walking away from computers and technology and engineering and electricity and all that stuff to go explore into this human side of the the world. And I think big thinker is a right analysis. I I lately have been trying to frame big data security in terms of cognition and cogs. There's so much emphasis in the United States on being a cog. If you can be a really essential cog, like hedge and corner a market, you can't live without this cog it's like being a coat hanger nobody can hang their clothes without being a coat hanger. <laughs> so you you become a billionaire because you make coat hangers and everyone has to hang their clothes and that's such a different mindset from a lot of places in the world where people think what is the big picture should we even have clothes to put on our coat hangers should we even have racks should we have closets and that's so fundamental that's cognition and i think what puts america at a disadvantage is we emphasize so much this cog uh sense of success and progress that now that we're in the world of big data, AI, machine learning, we're unprepared, we're almost unarmed because it's a world of cognition and the risks around the big picture. And so I think, whoa, unintentionally, I've ended up becoming both a technologist and a philosopher and I try (laughs) to bounce between the two, but I recognize their values in both, but I most often end up in world, I mean, 30 years, almost, Three decades of working with engineers, I constantly find them unprepared to discuss things that require big thinking. So I always try to stay on my toes on that side of the fence because it's the most important now, I think.
0: Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. I feel like we're helpless uh, in a way, in the way that we're going into the future. We're not really looking at the big picture at all. Um, You know, for me, you know, for example, just to give an example, I say, people treat AI like it's a teddy bear and it's a grizzly bear. So, uh, you know, we're not thinking about the risk enough about what's happening with technology. And also, you know, like you said, like being a big thinker, not just being sort of one of one of the people in Sam's workshop, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's two sides to this coin is I've been trying to write a book about this since about 2012. And it's been a real struggle 10 years now. My first book we cranked out in three months, six months, me and a co-author, because it was highly technical about how to break cloud environments. And then we were told to rename it to virtual environments because people at the time didn't even think cloud would be a success. So we were so early, they thought we should call it virtualization instead. But it really is about breaking the cloud. The second book, I thought, well, okay, now the infrastructure has been kind of laid out the risks. Let's talk about the data that lies on top of the risks. And I mean, The way I bifurcate this is you have easy routine and minimal judgment topics. And that's a conservative class of thinker that really wants to stick with things that have worked in the past. And they really believe in it to a point where if you tell them to get off of the old ways of doing things, they resist sometimes violently. They really, really don't like the chasm between them, the ERM, if you will. And the other side, which is the identify things, store lots of data, evaluate that data, and do an analysis of it so you can adapt. I call that ICEA. And so, and I've literally talked about this for 10 years, this ERM ISEA map, and I didn't come up with it. I really borrowed it from veterinarian medicine and every form of science I've ever studied has some version of this, even political science. You know, when you talk about the fall of the Soviet Union, it was, there were people who wanted to do things the old way. And there were people who wanted to make change, Gorbachev being an ISEA and a lot of the Politburo being the ERMs. And so the chasm creates the conflict. And what I'm trying to do most often in my analysis of AI or machine learning, as you say, teddy bears, is find people who are on the ERM side who look for a teddy bear because they want it to be easy. They want it to be routine. They want there to be minimal judgment. Everyone loves a teddy bear. It's my stuffy. I squeeze it. I feel comfortable. I can go to sleep at night. But the reality is over on the ICA side, the person who made that teddy bear put it on a MongoDB database that's open with no authentication on the web and it's recording everything that you're doing. <laughs> and so you've just put a teddy bear as a surveillance toy into your bed and it listens to absolutely everything. Your breathing, your heart rate, your you know. it's reporting all of that to the insurance companies, if not somebody who's trying to assassinate you. And that really is where we get to the dark side of this stuff is a lot of the information leakage, a lot of the privacy leakage we're seeing is driven by high stakes individuals who are trying to game or manipulate And so they they use the ERM blindness of people who just want something super easy and minimal judgment, and then they infiltrate the ISEA side, and people who aren't prepared to be an ISEA thinker or be able to handle the cognition of the big thought are just totally open and vulnerable to exploitation.
0: Let's talk about ethics. Uh, So, and I know that you probably know this better than most because I've read a lot of your posts, right? Not all laws are ethical. (laughs) And also law tends to react to things. And the problem with sort of AI technology is the harm can be so catastrophic that there really is no adequate redress or can't wait for a lawsuit or whatever to go through. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, there's an economic side to this, I think, that gets underplayed. You wouldn't write code for any machine if you knew it was going to fail because it would just be throwaway code all the time and you'd put yourself out of business. And the law is kind of the same. It's human code. So why, wrote, write, why write laws so fast that nobody ever follows them because they're broken? It would just be a huge waste of time. So laws tend to come slowly. They look in the rearview mirror more, than often, more often than not because they're trying to do something that they know would work, and that's a gamble. If you wait long enough, a lot of people got hurt you waited too long. But if you go too fast, you wrote a law that's useless. It doesn't even reflect reality. We see that a lot. So there's this constant balance. There's a middle road. I know people don't like to talk about middle road because it seems in America, we call that like waffling or wishy-washy, but that's the reality is you ride a bicycle to stay upright, not to fall to the left or fall to the left, right? So the law is slow by design to be a better law. And the way you work around that is by having lots of little laws written in like states, so that eventually you can figure out the best one to use at the federal level. Right? There's all these mechanisms in economics and politics to slowly more move towards a better code, so that it's more efficient. And I think that regulation often is undersold because it's in, in a broadest sense, In the broadest sense, regulation is innovation. If the CEO of the company says, "Okay, everybody," We're changing tack, we're going to build this thing instead of that thing. We're going to go to the moon, we need a rocket to get there. That's regulation. Put aside all your other projects and work on this alone. You can't work on that other project. People frame regulation as holding them back, but in reality, it may be holding them back so they can go faster forward. Brakes, in a sense, are regulation. So if you're driving really fast around a corner, you put the regulation on so you can come out of that corner even faster. And anyone who competes or races understands the importance of regulation in improving performance. And yet when we get into the space of laws and technology, so often I find really radical extremist anti-government, anti-regulation people getting into the mix saying the only way to move forward is with no rules at all, which is to me absolutely crazy. It just holds us back so much to have no regulation. And part of it is because they're in the ERM camp and they can't trust someone's done a proper analysis. And so they destroy all analysis, which is terrible. And then we get no progress at all. We go backwards to them basically the stone ages, you know, it's, so I think laws move slowly, but they, they need to move slowly, deliberately. And I think they need to happen because without them, we can't move forward.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, cause you're right. We're, we're looking and it's almost moving in the different directions in a way. So mm-hmm. that balance definitely needs to be there. Um, I think one of the, one of the challenges that, that has happened over the years with, Kind of that coordination, right? The technology versus law, or with the law, is that many of uh, many organizations have this whole silo, right? Where you know, for me, when I work in privacy, it's about really breaking down those walls and breaking down those silos and having that those conversations and having those collaborations in a way that. It wasn't before. So it can't just be Santa's workshop and you don't know what I'm doing and and vice versa. And I just have kind of blinders on and doing my thing and hoping that at the end that something good comes out.
1: Right. You have a balance between knowledge and privacy. I always try to frame that tension in those terms because people often think of privacy as a good, an inherent value to have. But then when you think about the opposite of that, they think it's a non-good Whereas knowledge being the opposite of privacy makes it clear that they're both good. And so you have to figure out how much good of one do you want versus how much good of the other. And so, exactly as, as you described, you got to break down the walls, you got to get rid of the silos, you got to bring all the information together, which is a removal of privacy in some sense. But it's because you'll get better privacy if you can remove the right amount to give you the knowledge you need to protect people.
0: I think that's where we are on kind of getting a federal privacy law or legislation where, you know, can't, we seem to have a hard time finding out sort of where that middle ground is. And so because we can't solve kind of the harder edge problems, which are, in my view, sort of, you know, will a federal law preempt, um, you know, what's happening at the state level and then the private right of action, like those are the two things that sort of stop us from being able to find that middle ground. What are your thoughts
1: about that? One of the biggest problems, like the EFF being this crazy, crazy libertarian, you know, slush fund that sort of pushes the agenda at the government level, I find the same to be true in the privacy space with a lot of different groups. And one of the things that shocked me is the lobby groups that said any kind of federal regulation would re- reduce innovation. Now they say this from think tanks. You know, it's probably three or four think tanks. There's a the University of Chicago scholar. There's a bunch of people I've seen say this. It's factually not true. And it's difficult to argue because they bring lots of facts. They'll do studies and they'll say the the European in market had some regulation, therefore they have no innovation, which of course is not true. But those are the types of things we have to argue against. In fact, as a technologist, and this is why it's weird bridging the two sides, as someone inside companies, you know, I recently built end-to-end encryption at the field level because there was just a little bit of privacy regulation, you know, because GDPR came to bear, because... Larger, more wide-scope geographic areas are under privacy regulation. We then had the approval from the board to put, oh, it was, you know, quite a bit of engineering talent. You know, we had like fifteen people and five million dollars invested over a couple of years. And I've been doing this stuff for decades, so I felt like the more federal regulation you get, the more national or union-based regulation you get, the more justification you have for innovation and thinking about solving the hard problems. So the fact that the United States doesn't have it is holding us back. I absolutely think we're not solving the problems because when I sit in these boardrooms and talk to people, they say, well, we don't have to do it. So why don't we spend money on another feature instead? That's not related to privacy.
0: Did you um, I would love for you to expand a little bit on solid for people who don't understand what that is.
1: Yeah, so Solid is about linked data. The web, obviously, is you click on a link and it takes you someplace. So imagine if, back to the genesis of the web, you put up a website, you put your information on it, and then people can click a link, find a link, click a link, and get to your information. So that's the genesis of the web. It's this linked ecosystem of data where we can all collaborate, share, publish, read. So Solid allows that in the linked data system to be a personal data store. And so it introduces essentially a venn diagram of three circles you have the circle of stored data which is the personal data store or pod where everything that you generate create write uh, collect goes into your personal data store it doesn't have to be a single physical place but it needs to be a philosophically it needs to be like your body a, a place that is centered around you right people understand it's what defines you now the other two circles are the identity and the applications so the identity Is generated someplace. Maybe it's by you, maybe it's by your parents, maybe it's by your workplace, maybe it's by the sports club you join. It can be lots of identity stores, or it can be one that represents all of those. You know, the government keeps a lot of identities, your driver's license, your taxpayer ID, your birth certificate. So you get your IDs, you connect those to your data store. Now you can write apps and they always know where to put the data and they always know which identity to use. So if you get those three circles just right, Anybody, can write, anybody in the world can write an app and access your data, read your data, write your data based on the identities that you're using. So let me give you a real world example. There's, there's a simple one. You play chess with me. We have a game. We use an app and the moves are stored. My moves are stored in my pod. Your moves are stored in your pod. We halfway through the game, get rid of that app, get a new app. It reads where we were and we continue playing. That's the type of flexibility that allows app explosion because anyone can write apps that can read anyone's data in the true sense of a standard, right? That's how the internet is so successful. We have standards that are open. So let's move on to another example. I go into a furniture store and I, because I'm buying a present for someone, choose all bright lime green furniture. I want a chair, I want a rug. I say, please keep this data while I'm shopping. And then I leave and I come back the next day and I say, I want to shop for something. In the current context, that data is stored on their servers and they identify me by the me coming back by all the things, the trail of crumbs, or maybe I put my username in. I don't want line green data to be present. That was for somebody else. In the current context, it's very hard to get rid of that experience and that that world that I was just in and say, reset. But in the solid context, the pod, I can just say, don't look at that data. I might have even throw the data away or erase that data, or maybe I kept it to use again, but I choose. And so now I look for more furniture and I can choose an entirely different persona. So then I can have like, I'm looking for this person. I'm looking for that person. I'm looking for me. So I can turn on and off what I share with people based on the fact that the data is centered around me, the pod. So that's, you know, the retail experience would change. And I saw this recently with people saying they just throw away data when you're browsing the web, right? There's a browser saying, we just throw all the data away and you can present it again if you want, or you can choose not to. That is the solid concept that you present the data when you want. Now the complicated part comes, let's say the power company is giving you power based on the information that's in your pod. You delete that information. Do you lose power? That gets back into the integrity or do they keep a copy of the data? In that sense, it makes sense to have a copy of the data somewhere else. Here's another example. Mercedes makes me a car. It has 10,000 sensors in it. When they deliver the car, those sensors putting their data into my pod, I choose whether I share that information. Like, is there a pothole? Is the speed of my car going over the speed limit? All that data gets shared by me, by my consent. That's very different than right now where Mercedes is getting all that information and just sharing it with whomever. I literally read that Ford is sharing data over your driving habits with other car companies, regardless of whether you want to or not. And you have no idea that when you buy this car, you know. for all the new f 150 is an amazing new electric truck news, I see very little privacy news about what that truck is gonna be doing. You're gonna be powering your home with that truck? That's amazing. Okay, what is it gonna be saying about, a lot of people don't know this, but when you power your home off of a device, it's making fingerprints of what you're doing. Every time you turn on the toaster, every time you run the fridge, those all have fingerprints and you can tell exactly what's happening inside a home, exactly what brand of things people have and what they own. So the pod enables us to put all that data generation back into a place that actually is representative of us and we have control and consent and ownership over it. That's solid in a nutshell.
0: So right now people don't have really any control over their identity, right? So their identity is sort of these fragments Of data that different corporations have and gather and buy and sell or trade uh, uh, with one another. So, a lot of us, you know, we, a lot of people think we have or we have control over that, and we really don't. Um, So, I think, you know, uh, decentralization, I think, well, I think it's important in two ways. One, from a technical perspective, right? Uh, being able to have agency over how you share or not share your data, but then also being able to have a more fulsome, be able to create a more fulsome picture of yourself that you can share this more true than what people infer from the fragments of data that are just sort of running around about you. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, exactly. So part of living in the digital realm Like the physical realm, really, it's not that different. But in the digital realm, you give pieces of your identity away as you move around, right? You say, hello, my name is Davi and I'm from the Bay Area or San Francisco. And so people collect that information, but nobody really in the physical world believes they have the absolute definition of you because you've shared something with them. They still think, well, if I need an update on that, I go back to that person to get an update. Are you still living in San Francisco? Where are you now? Is your name still Davi or have you changed it legally? Stuff like that. When you get into the digital world, though, you give pieces of information away and suddenly people think, well, I have this information. I have the absolute right definition of this person because I've captured some piece of them. And then they even try to sell it. And so as accurate and real. But we know for a fact, first of all, that data is not accurate. We know that consent isn't being given to you to share it with other parties, right? Repeated breaches and lawsuits over and over again. And so one of the questions I got asked of me recently, which was really interesting was, If you used solid to give people the right to control all of that, as they should, what would prevent poor people from just selling out and rich people from getting privacy? And I thought, what an interesting question, because first of all, it presumes poor people would be the sellout, right? Just because you're poor, you make bad decisions. That's not true at all. In fact, it may be the opposite. Poor people may recognize that because money isn't everything, they would only do it to help the greater good. Like I'm going to give my information away because it's going to solve cancer. It goes back to privacy versus knowledge. I'm going to share because I'm trying to help everybody because I'm poor. Money doesn't mean that much to me. On the flip side, we know that rich people don't always make the best decision. I mean, look how extremely wealthy I'm talking like million dollar income plus Facebook executives greedily gave away everyone's privacy, just dumped on Cambridge Analytica. Was it nine, 10 million people's identities or information? because they wanted to give access to 300,000 accounts. That's just exponential harm on top of harm because they're so wealthy they couldn't make the right decision. Or rather they're so wealthy they didn't help them in making the right decision, better way of putting it. So are people in a position to make good decisions about their privacy if you give them the capability? And I think the answer is, well, it depends on whether they're you know studied and learned in the art of when to share and when not to share, which is no different than physical. You know, who do you tell your name to? Who do you go visit? Who do you, where do you go? So we're approaching a place where people need to recognize that you could live in a world, you should live in a world where the information you share out there isn't what defines you.
0: I guess it concerns me uh, for obvious reasons, right? Bias that sort of seeps in here. So if you have a parent that doesn't know you, right? Uh, how can they know what's best for you? Or how do you, you know, they may infer things that are not true, that can, that actions are taken against you that can harm you.
1: Right. Or even even more troublesome is when you get into examples of child exploitation and prostitution, where basically women who are under age are groomed and then turned into permanent children with a pimp as their controlling authority and their bodies are used against their will for things that make the pimp successful, right? Disposable lives. That's the Facebook model essentially. It's a sort of enslavement. It's an entrapment and exploitation of humanity. So when the prostitute kills the, the pimp, these are c- classic court cases. When they kill the pimp, they're exonerated because they were under control. And in fact, consent is interesting because as a child, people would say it typically, well, they're promiscuous. They would come up with excuses for, well, You shared your data, you gave away your password, you used a weak password. You did things that allow, that's promiscuity in the digital sense. You did things that allowed you to be exploited by others who had dominance over you, but those are not consensual. And in fact, you don't, under law, you do not have the right to give consent to use your body as a child, right? The adult is always wrong. They're always abusing you in that context. You have not made a conscious choice. And that's where in the digital realm, we need to get much more intelligent about when we have predators And we have people who are controlling tyrants, pimps, and so forth. They're not just parents. They're enforcing dominance for self-gain and in a way that's exploitative and victimizing people who are trying to live in a world that they think is safe, but they have no knowledge of what they really could be living in, which is a world that gives them agency, that gives them definition of rights to their own body.
0: Yeah, so now... Um, there, there's a concept uh, that you, you have that you talk a bit about, which is digital slavery. Can you explain that a bit?
1: For sure. It's not that different from slavery. I mean, that's one of the big eye openers for me was as I dug into this research more and more and more, I found that a lot of the parallels to history were in the slavery concept. So what you find is this idea of you aggressively take, in, you take space, you take people in that space and then you make them a profit center. And as you profit from these people's bodies, their labor, their generation of ideas, their generation of other bodies, right? All the things that they're, all the assets and value and things that they create are yours to own. If you look at that model, that's essentially what I'm finding is Facebook. It even got to the point where, when I read about Facebook saying, well, the value of the American is going down or stable because fewer and fewer are joining our platform. We need to find a country that we can, like Cambodia, that we can go in and make a pitch, we'll provide internet, and then we'll get four Cambodians for every one American because they're worth 25 cents and an American account is worth a dollar. That to me just so many alarm bells. You know, I was a longtime student of colonialism and imperialism, and a lot of what I write about I think is shocking to Americans because they're never taught the actual history. It's shocking to people that Washington was an avowed slaver. What you learn is he really wasn't into it. He didn't really like it. Eventually, he wanted it to go away. But none of the facts support that. What you see is that George Washington actively found loopholes and laws to make sure he didn't lose his slaves. Throughout his life, he conspired with his lawyers to get away with exploitation of people. Even to the final day, he died in a terrible cold storm that was so harsh he couldn't survive it. But he was standing on, or sitting on a horse looking over his slaves. No one ever talks about what happened to the slaves in that same storm. And so when I think about the context today of digital slavery, I think, okay, you have these executives at a company like a Facebook who are getting value out of all these people they draw into their platform. And they're just looking at ways that they can keep them from leaving. And they're looking at ways that they can generationally continue to expand and get into more markets and more relations and more. And and if you leave, you're dead to them. That's like running away, right? And so there's so much pressure on preventing people from ever leaving and always staying and always generating value for them. Yeah. I, I mean, I could go on forever about the, the historical <laughs> comparisons, but I think I think yeah. it's so instructional that it's hard to have this discussion with people unless they really understand the history of slavery. Right. And so many people do not. Right. So that's the first problem. And then the second is, People need to understand that when you get into a cult, it's kind of a form of slavery. If you join a cult that you can't leave without being deprogrammed, where you feel like you can't live without them,
0: uh-huh.
1: you're getting into mind, mindset of colonists. The power of colonialism was that it came in in a way that you couldn't get it out. Right. So if we talk about colonialism at all in the digital space, we really need to recognize it was a symbiotic relationship that was meant to invade your space in a way that you no longer had agency and control over your own destiny and your own body. You couldn't self-rule. You couldn't articulate or express yourself because of the way that it wouldn't leave you. You had to have it in order to even survive. And I I find that like in the Bay Area, I'll even, I'll, I'll find young... I, I hate to use the stereotype, but I I find young white men who come out of very fancy Ivy League colleges who come and say, my goal here is to find something I can get inside of that can't get rid of me. I'm going to buy up all the parking spots in San Francisco so that everybody has to pay me to get them back again. (laughs) And I go, that's unethical. That's just absolutely, it's illegal. You can't do that. You know, If you're in New York City, they would recognize this because they've had so much experience with the mafia and the mob and trying to get them out of the garbage collection industry or get them out of the cornering the the restaurant industry but it's like in the bay area somehow they don't have the instant in the silicon valley they don't have the instant mindset the reaction to well that's just colonialism that's just rico that's just unethical hedge cornering markets monopolization Mm -hmm. so that's where digital slavery comes from it's it's an easy way for me to sort of characterize the business model of a facebook and why you'll find Facebook executives leaving and saying, we're here to protect you. It, right. it was not uncommon. I mean, I went to a school in England. It was not uncommon to find people who left the colonial army and said, we were there just to protect people. We were there just to help people. We were there to make them better. And they can't do it on their own. They're not capable. And that's the colonial mindset that I find often coming out of Facebook executives saying, here, I'm here to help. I'm here to help you with privacy because I was doing the absolute opposite for so long. I'm the person you want to talk to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would love to talk with you about the way that, uh, um, you know, organizations, governments, I see this a lot where they're trying, where they try to have you choose privacy versus security, as opposed to talking about it in a way where they can exist together in some way. Um, so, you know, what, what what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, that's that's absolutely the problem with, moving away from the privacy versus knowledge discussion. Security protects knowledge, but security also protects privacy. You can't put security in between privacy and knowledge. It doesn't fit. It goes in both. If you want more knowledge, you use security and usually integrity and availability. For example, availability is a big, big, big part of security, but that's opposed to privacy. Because if I have super high availability, everyone knows it all the time. That's the best availability. It can't be lost ever. Now, confidentiality, whoa, that's also security. And confidentiality absolutely blows up all your availability. I lose this key, it's gone forever. It's very confidential. So we have in security, the balance between privacy and knowledge, we're supposed to do both. And so what people are doing very disingenuously is taking one part of security and saying it's opposed to privacy, but not the other part of security, which is also right there, big elephant in the room, which is completely in favor of privacy. I guess it's, a lot of people don't want to be balanced. And that's probably the hardest thing is if you, if you go all in on one availability and just availability, it's super easy because all you do is try to keep up time and measure how many servers are on all the time. And then when somebody says, I need all my servers to be offline now, it blows up everything. So you have to be able to constantly balance between two completely contradictory opposed uh, values. Now, integrity I left out there also factors in here. You know, if you have good integrity, it's, it's a third circle in the Venn diagram. And actually security is very bad at integrity. We've completely left integrity out of the room because it's difficult to talk about. But a form of privacy is no integrity. If you don't trust the data, if you don't believe this data is accurate, then you don't use the data because it's garbage. And so what you find is in real world terms, when you say, please put your secret in, people put pineapple. And what's your mother's name? Pineapple. What street were you born on? Pineapple. And so there's no integrity to the data because you're generating privacy, right? Because you don't trust the people who are going to have that database of your information. You use garbage data or you use tokenization where you substitute pineapple means, I don't know, Washington and uh, mango means cinnamon. You know, so whatever system you use, integrity is a big, big, big factor in, in preserving privacy. So security is absolutely in favor of privacy. Um, but on the flip side, if I have really good integrity because I've really worked hard at making sure that there's integrity, you lose a lot of privacy. So in between availability and confidentiality, integrity itself is constantly at war with itself because as it's, you're trying to do integrity for privacy and integrity against privacy. So it's, it's complicated. When people really understand security, they don't just jump into it and become famous. This tends to happen two, three years into a security career, people become famous because they found a bug or a flaw in something and somehow that makes them famous as opposed to spending 20 years really grinding in the trenches of everything is contradictory and nothing makes sense to have a very big picture conceptual understanding of, hey, there's no perfect answer here. So
0: so if it was the world according to Davi and we did everything you said, uh, what would be your wish for, let's say data privacy, whether it be you know, in ethics, law, technology, anywhere in the world?
1: What would I like to see Mm -hmm. or what would I change?
0: Or even human space. I like to throw human in there too.
1: Human space. Well, let me start with Solid again because I'm working on Solid with Tim Berners-Lee, which is a huge honor. It's just amazing. My whole career, my entire technology life has been on the web from the very beginning. Because the web was created, I feel like I jumped into it in 1994 and everything since then has been web. So to work with the guy who created the thing on security is mind-blowingly wonderful and refreshing, because I really believe in the web. And I really believe the change in solid is going to make it better. It's like sitting down with the founder who says it's working, but not as I had hoped. So let's improve it. And I'm all in for that. Let's make a better place, a better world in the digital space. When people talk about the metaverse, I go, yeah, solid gives you the metaverse. When people talk about blockchain, I go, yeah, solid gives you the blockchain. It is the infrastructure layer like the web that blooms a million flowers. It creates that better world. And it has all the balance built in. You want to over-centralize because that's your your deal? You can do that on solid. You can over-centralize to protect yourself from being over-diversified. You want to diversify because centralization is a huge threat to your existence? You can do that. And so that's, you know, to create a future that is that flexible and that diverse and that representative of the human condition is what I'm trying to work on. The, the human really matters in the technology space. The technology does not matter as much as the human, right? The, the tractors, the plows, the fire, all of that stuff is used by us. And we need to think of it in those terms, even in the digital space. And so that's the change. Solid is, in a sense, something other people have thought of that I'm all on board with, because I believe it's a reflection of the human condition that is most useful. Now, that being said, you know, Wollstonecraft is probably my favorite philosopher at the moment. And has been for a while. I used to like Hume extensively, but I realized no one's heard of Wollstonecraft, so I started getting more on that and I'm trying to understand why. A lot of what she said is so helpful because you're talking about a woman in the 1700s, late 1700s, who said women should vote, women are equal to men, blacks are equal to whites. I'm talking 1700s. Now, in context, in 1735, the colony of Georgia abolished slavery. So there was a lot of abolition in America before the revolution, which brought slavery back. Americans have to understand that the American Revolution was about preserving and expanding slavery. It was not about the end of tyranny, it was about creating a tyranny. And so when you look at Wollstonecraft in the context of the 1700s saying, hey, blacks are equal, women are equal to men, humans are equal to, and it's all about education and learning. It's just kind of mind blowing to think she's not someone anyone's heard of. (laughs) And her philosophy is so spot on target, her writing is so clear. She just trashes Rousseau as he deserves to be. Uh, Rousseau was fundamental to fascism, for example. Rousseau's philosophies ended up being tyranny and she just trashes him in the 1700s. And so I would like to see people working on projects that are in the concept of Wollstonecraft, seeing the future. So often people say, how can you see the future? How can you predict where we're gonna go? How do we, we need to collect all the data in order to have a better picture of what to do. That's been a big mantra in big data, you know, the data lakes and the AI and ML. If we just have 10 million more crashes and 50,000 more fatalities, we'll finally figure out how to prevent one. It's such a broken mindset. You have somebody who did not have any of the resources, did not have the internet, did not have keyboards, you know, let alone printing press. You know, she didn't have any of the modern conveniences and yet she could see the future. And people really need to think about that, let alone people who saw the future centuries before her. Or thousands of years before her. We have that capability right now. The way that we approach technology, the way we use technology, we need to think about how to improve other people's lives, pull them up and make them equal. And so if I were to change one thing, it would be to get in front of the people who believe that we need to be competitive and help them understand that humans are successful because we're compassionate and collaborative. It's what defines us as humans. We're not competitive by nature. We learn to be competitive. We are compassionate and collaborative by nature. And so that would make our technology much more useful and successful, and our innovations would be much more impactful. So whatever it is we do, I would want that to be the change. And I believe solid is a manifestation of that. We can collaborate better because this protocol allows it, allows collaboration. Now we can compete also. Com- competition is a small piece of that, but competition within collaboration. If you're on the same team, who's better on the team? isn't meant to make the team less successful. It's meant to help you collaborate so that you can compete against a larger and then a larger and larger until ultimately you're all collaborating.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, this has been a great session. Thank you for illuminating on all these different uh, areas. You know, I think it's fascinating your work and ethics and trust. And, you know, I'm sure we'll have other chats in the future.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.
0: Thank you.